Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to his promises. And you can turn with me to 1 Samuel this morning as we continue our walk through the entire Bible, one book at a time. And we're calling this series Table Read. We're calling this series Table Read. A table read, if you don't know, is when players, actors and actresses in a drama sit down at a table and they read, table read, they read the entire drama, the entire script from beginning to to end. And what this does is it gives them access to two important things. It gives them access to the big picture of the drama of which they are a part. But it also, therefore, it gives them confidence to play their role, however small or however, or however large their role is in this big drama. Well, at Hope, we believe that the Bible is the true story of the world. It is not just a divine drama, it is the divine drama. And this divine drama both lowers us and it elevates us. It lowers us because Jesus is the hero of the true story of the world, not you, not me. But with that truth, it also elevates us because Jesus gives us an unbelievably important and indispensable role to play in this drama. But for us to play this role well, we need to know, I think, the big picture. In other words, I think we need to table read the Bible, which is what we're doing. We started with Genesis in September. Who was there for that? We started in Genesis in September, and we are already at 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've made good work. Pat yourself on the back. That's impressive work. And let me just say right away this morning that Samuel is not a short story like Ruth was last week, if you were with us. Uh, Ruth feels kind of like a Twitter post compared to 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so we can't do Samuel, I think, any justice in just a 30-minute sermon this morning. I'm not going to pretend to. But I do think that we can take 10 minutes to get the big picture of Samuel together this morning. And then maybe take the rest of those 20 minutes to ask God what this means for you. What this means even for me. And so let's just dig right in and then we'll pray. So the Old Testament scholar V. Phillips Long, he divides the epic of Samuel into eight story arcs. So if Samuel was a Netflix series, we'll put it this way. There's eight, we'll say, two-hour episodes, okay? Long episodes, not those dinky half-hour episodes, no. These are like eight epics put into one giant epic. And we could title each of these episodes as follows, one through eight. And so let's just quickly summarize each of these, starting with the first what we'll call the fall of Eli and the rise of Samuel. This first episode tells a story of a priest named Eli and his wicked sons. Eli's sons actually remind us that we are still in the time of the judges. They are abusing women and God's people in God's name. They also treat the Ark of the Tabernacle, which symbolized God's Holy presence, like a magic amulet. Like a baseball player treats their unwashed socks during playoffs. You know what I mean? Like, this will help me win. Not washing my clothes. That will help me win. Well, they're treating the Ark of the Covenant 
in that manner. It was a dark start for Samuel. Is a dark start. But at this dark moment, God intrudes with a miraculous birth of a baby who will be a good prophet, who will be a good priest, who will be a good leader. Sounds a lot like Christmas. And it should. But no, this baby is not named Jesus. This baby is named Samuel. And his mother, Hannah, like Mary, generations later at Christmas, is a godly woman who entrusts this child to the Lord. Is a bright, bright light in the midst of this darkness. And who also, like Mary, gives us one of the richest prayers in the Bible. About the Lord who turns everything upside down, who exalts the humble and lowers the proud. Well, Samuel, her son, is humble. And so we see right away that he is exalted by God. And so episode one starts dark, but ends with some light, which takes us to the sketchy rise of Saul. Episode two. Aren't you excited? (laughs) A lot of years pass by, actually, in Samuel's life so that he's elderly at this point beginning of episode two, but his sons can't take a spot because they too are corrupt. And so all of Israel decides to kick it up a notch. They don't want a judge anymore. They don't want an ambiguous leader anymore. They want a straight up king. Which is not bad in itself, by the way. After all, God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. But they tell Samuel to his horror that they want a king like the other nations. And if you've been following along with us at all and in any possible way in these beginnings of this table read, you know that that is a no-no. Like the other nations, that is not what they're called to be at all. They're called the blessed nations by being a kingdom unto God. Unique. So how do they bless the nations if they're like the nations? You know, salt and light require two things. They require contact and contrast. What we could call missional contact and godly contrast. And so if they're just like the nations, they have no godly contrast, which means, of course, no blessing. And so Samuel's hackles are up and they should be. But Israel gets what they want with an impressive, physically impressive man named Saul. Things look good at first, but there's cracks in the foundation. Number one, he doesn't do what the Lord commands. He doesn't tell anybody about getting chosen, actually, to be this king. And when he does go public... No one can find him. He's hiding in luggage. The scriptures say he's hiding behind luggage. And that's how episode two ends. uh, ends. The sketchy rise. I say sketchy because it's, yeah, he rises and he's anointed and all these things, but there's something off. Do you feel it? There's something off about it. It ends with a king like the nations hiding behind the luggage. Scroll Scroll the credits. (laughs) Episode two. Episode three. Here we are with the rejection of Saul. What we were hoping, not maybe what we were hoping, but what we were anticipating starts to happen. In chapters 12 through 15 of 1 Samuel, Saul falls hard. Instead of reflecting God's character to the watching world, he instead reflects his ego and insecurities and pride to the watching world. And so we see this by his manipulation of God. With a sacrifice out of fear. We see his son Jonathan has to fight for him. Which becomes a theme. David and Goliath. A little hint. 
Saul rewards Jonathan's courage by vowing to kill his own son because he ate some honey because he was hungry after doing what Saul should have done. And so he fails to reflect God in almost every way so that by chapter 15, verse 10, God himself says, I'm sorry that I ever made King Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel breaks it to him and Saul sheds what could be described as crocodile tears, religious crocodile tears, craving, the text says, more human honor than the Lord himself. And that's the end of episode three. It's his formal rejection, which takes us to episode four, the fall and rise of David. Chapter 16. In this episode, the Lord leads Samuel to humble Bethlehem. Have you heard of that place before? And in this humble town, the Lord tells Samuel to anoint the humblest of Jesse's seven sons. But he's nowhere to be found. Why? He's not hiding in the luggage. He's shepherding the sheep. Could this humble shepherd kid be Israel's true king? Would this humble shepherd kid possibly reflect God and his character to the watching world? That's the question we're asking. And so chapters 16 through 31 are largely a sad story of Saul's downfall and David's rise. Think of it this way. Saul fails or falls because he reflects his agenda to the world. David rises because he reflects God's agenda and God's character to the world. It's all about reflection, and we're going to get into this more. We see Saul's reflection of his own glory and his jealousy of David and his self-preservation, his lack of a shepherd heart for God's sheep when they're harassed by a giant wolf named Goliath. His murder of God's priests and most damning, his lack of real repentance throughout it all. At one point, Saul longs for intimacy with God again because God has gone quiet. And instead of repenting, he consults a witch to hear God's voice. And all of this kind of ends, sadly, at the end of 1 Samuel with him falling on his sword. Literally. At the same time, woven throughout all of this fall, we see David reflecting, in a way, God. We see his courage, we see his love of God, and we see his love of God's sheep. He defeats Goliath for all of Israel. He becomes a fugitive, but in this uh, wilderness Running, This draws David to trust in the Lord even more. Many of our psalms, we could easily imagine, were written during this time. And inspired during this time in his life. He could have killed Saul twice. And both times he refuses. He protects cities like Keilah. He's patient with others. He's covenantally loyal, like we saw in Ruth last week, to Jonathan, the heir apparent to Saul. David's not perfect? No way. We'll get into that with the next episode. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Abigail has to courageously confront David. But by the end of 1 Samuel, by the end of episode 4, we see two scenes side by side right at the end. This is when the credits are rolling. We see Saul lying on his own sword. And meanwhile... We see David rescuing the vulnerable and saying, literally, and I'm quoting from scripture, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. And that's how episode four ends. 
which takes us to episode five, David, the king of Judah. David's anointed as king of Judah, the southern region of Israel. And right away, he continues to largely reflect God's character in two important ways. Number one, he laments the death of of Saul. He laments the death of Jonathan. And number two, he keeps his head when there's rebellion from the north. For those that are still loyal to Saul. Episode five is one of those episodes. If you're watching Netflix where you're kind of like, what's next? (laughs) And here we are. We'll call this the kingdom of God. It's a very important one. David becomes king over all of Israel. And he makes Jerusalem the capital and he relocates this ark, this tabernacle ark to Jerusalem. And then we reach the most important moment in Samuel. And some people say perhaps the most important moment in all of the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter seven. David's flying high. And so he looks at this unimpressive wooden box that his ancestors carried around the desert and says, God, what you need is a house. You need a nice house. This doesn't befit you, God. And this seems like a perfectly good idea to David and maybe to all of us. But God says, no, (laughs) no. Number one, I don't need you to tell me what I need to do. I don't need a home. You don't control me. You have this kind of backwards, David. But number two, speaking of houses, I will. There will be a house. I'm going to build a house. Not you. I'm going to build a house. And it's not the kind of house you're expecting. It's a dynasty. It's that kind of house. I will build you a dynasty. And it's right here at this moment that God turns Israel from a kingdom of priests with only an invisible king, Yahweh, into a kingdom of priests with a visible king. Who is meant to reflect God to Israel and reflect God to all of the world. It's clear that God is stacking up at this moment on top of the promises that he made to Abraham so many generations ago to say, I am going to bless the world through you. And this time I'm going to bless the world through, through a kingdom and through a king that the world can see. That's the house I'm building. You're mistaken, David. That's the house I'm building. And so David initially shows promise to be this king who blesses. He blesses with justice. He blesses with his kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who cannot walk. He honors his promises. And this is not just good for Israel. It's good for the whole Fertile Crescent. And then we get to episode 7. The promise of David falls hard. I mean, if we were writing Israel's story, we would probably have ended the series at episode 6. And said, isn't this great? Aren't we doing awesome? But no, starting in chapter 11... And going all the way to chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, we read about abuse of power. We read about sexual violence. We read about destruction of almost everything that has been built up at this point. David does not reflect God at all when he abuses his power by sexually violating Bathsheba. Who, by the way, is never depicted in the Bible as a seductress, but only depicted in the Bible as a victim. But she is. 
And this event is like dropping a giant boulder onto the surface of a still lake. And the waves from David's sin reverberate first with the murder of Bathsheba's good husband, Uriah. For a cover up. To cover up the pregnancy. Second, sexual violence and abuse of power reverberates into the rape of Tamar. Which thirdly reverberates into one of David's sons, Absalom's revenge. And this tears the kingdom apart. Absalom, David's own son, forces David into exile. Absalom dies with his hair caught in a tree. If you remember that from Sunday school. So by the end of episode 7, David is back in Jerusalem, but things are never the same. Things are never the same. And if the watching world was blessed by the presence of Israel and their king in episode 6, episode 7 shows us that things can go terribly wrong in God's house. Which takes us to the final episode. We'll call it the unfinished story. David famously repents. You can read about this. We actually use it in our liturgy this morning. From Psalm 51. You can see the details of his inner life in that repentance. Which is amazing. But especially in ancient literature like that. And a kind of balance is found in Jerusalem. But the careful reader feels wary. Don't they? The promises to bless the nations feel in a way unrealized. Don't they? So that we see in this last episode, chapters 21 through 24, a man named Sheba creates another revolt in Israel, creating more and more division and ugliness. And then we get a few worship songs from David. And then the whole epic just ends on a minor chord. A minor chord, a chord is, you know, at least three notes. And a minor chord is often an off note, or a, a, a note that creates tension. And we see that at the very ending. David's pride. He counts up the people of Israel in a census almost... You get the sense out of insecurity, maybe. To soothe his insecurity. Okay, how big is my kingdom again? Let's count. And then he has deep repentance again. And then we see God's costly mercy at an altar that will later be in the books of King. The presence of God's temple. And that's Samuel. That's Samuel. We did it. We did it. (laughs) We covered a lot of ground. It is an epic But how does our unique role in God's story fit into this? That's a question maybe some of you have been asking as we've been listening to this and reminding ourselves. And so let's just pray briefly before we answer that question. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when our church was super new, many, many years ago, we were meeting in our living room. And all of us wanted the church to grow in size. And so I would, of course, ask our folks about to think about somebody they could invite, some friends or colleagues that they could invite to our little living room church. But around that time, a very kind and even a very experienced leader took me aside and essentially said, Joe, you're going to have to show us what that looks like. And this experienced leader reminded me of the truth. As go the leader, so goes the people. In fact, just a few weeks ago, another experienced leader shared with our home group leaders. We were having a luncheon. The same thing. She reminded us that home groups are usually only as vulnerable as the leader. 
leads them in vulnerability. As goes the leader, so goes the people. As much as we wish that we are all individuals who are sort of uninfluenced by influencers or by leaders, the stubborn truth remains we're deeply shaped by leaders. For good and for ill. It seems like this is the way God made us. So on our living room wall, hidden behind the bookshelf, there's a small electronic box attached to the wall, and it controls our heating and our cooling in our house. And this small electronic box is both a thermometer and a thermostat. The thermometer reads the air, and the thermostat changes the air. Well, for better or for worse, leaders are thermostats who change the air. They change the temperature of the room. And this means we can thrive under good leadership. This also means that we can wither under bad leadership. If you are working a job right now under bad leadership, I I hear your amen. Your inaudible amen. We saw this dynamic in the book of Judges. We saw this dynamic in the book of Ruth, didn't we? In Judges, the leadership was largely corrupt. And it was reflective, the leadership, not of God and his character, but the surrounding culture. And it was a curse to others. In Ruth, as a contrast, the leadership of Boaz and the leadership of Ruth herself was largely reflective of God's kindness, of God's chesed love, and it blessed others. And this dynamic is also at work in the book of Samuel. As we were recounting the book of Samuel, I think you could probably piece together where I'm going. Samuel is a study in contrasts, is it not? In the beginning, we're asked to compare the leadership of Eli with the leadership of Samuel, which feels like a prelude to a comparison of King Saul versus King David. And clearly, Samuel is this giant genius work. But if I were asked to boil it down to its core essence, I would probably draw a picture. This picture, which I learned from my Old Testament professor, Dr. Jack Collins. In this picture, we see in picture form the saying, as goes the leader, the R is a representative. The R is meant to reflect or be a representative of God. And as goes the R, so goes the little X's inside the circle. The little X is you and me. And if this is true, then the character of that R matters greatly. Think about it. To the extent that this R reflects the heart of God, his mercy, his kindness, his justice, his truth, his grace, to that same extent, those in that circle thrive. Amen? And the opposite is true too. If this R does not reflect God's good ways, instead rejects God's good ways, then those inside that circle wither, don't they? In my house, we have many plants. Plants are living things. And they're also vulnerable things. They're dependent things. They are super dependent on the R of the house. And that's me and my wife. So if we open the window blinds and let light through, if we water them, guess what? They grow and they thrive. 
But if we never open the windows or water them, they die. And the same is true of God's people, friends. When the representative actually represents the ways of God, they are essentially opening the window to God and his ways and watering them with his word. And they thrive. But if this representative closes God out with their own agenda, their own lack of repentance, then the plants under the are wither and die. Well, this image can help us as we think about Samuel, as we think about our life in relationship to Samuel. The image actually in Samuel isn't plants and sunlight, but weightiness. Hang on to that word, weightiness, which comes from the Hebrew word family, kavod. Kavod. Yeah, you tracking? That says kavod in Hebrew. Taking my word for it, I realize that. KVD, in the opposite direction. Kavod. V. Phillips Long considers this word an important key to unlocking the whole purpose of Samuel. Kavod means weighty, Kavod means heavy. And it's sometimes used to describe something that is literally heavy. Eli falls over and dies because he's kavod. He's heavy. That's what it says. But it's mostly used to describe something that is figuratively heavy. And when that happens, the English word we read in our Bible is usually honor or glory. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis. He famously describes humans in hell as almost ghosts who lack substance. The rain falls through them like bullets and the grass under their feet feels like nails and they're ghostly because they lack substance. But in heaven, people are weighty. They're substantial. They're more human. They're less ghostly. Why? Because God is more weighty in their hearts. See, humans are more truly human when God is truly God in their hearts. When somebody is figuratively weighty, we know what that means. It means they have substance. It means they don't blow away. It means they have glory. It means they have honor. This is how Hannah puts it in her song. She, she sings, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of kavod. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The Lord sees the humble, Hannah says, and gives them what? Weightiness. He sees what we consider lightweight in the world, and he gives them weight, honor, glory. And that's the great reversal of Hannah. And if you read Mary's song, the Magnificat, she's singing the same exact thing. It's a great reversal. Only Hannah has eyes to see and Mary after her. And so when Yahweh, the weighty one, sees pride in the life of Eli and his corrupt sons, he doesn't give them weight. He doesn't give them kavod. He makes them light. Here's how the Lord puts it in chapter 2. Verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself? Making yourself heavy on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who kavod me, I will kavod. 
And those who despise me or think lightly of me in the, in the Hebrew shall be lightly esteemed or carry little weight. So when Eli dies, he dies on his own weight, his own kavod, his own self-glory, his own false glory. And when Eli's grandchild is born, he's named, do you remember? Ichavod or Ichabod. What does that mean? Ichavod means no glory, no weight. And that is exactly where things stand at the beginning of Samuel. The weightiness is gone. It's just gone. All of Israel is weightless. And that's just it. The R of the circle has no weight because God was not heavy in their hearts and minds. So V. Philip Long says that this insight is a truth of fundamental importance for understanding not just the story of Eli, but also the stories of Saul and David, end quote. Saul doesn't give God glory. In other words, if we're keeping the weightiness in our minds, Saul doesn't give God appropriate weight. And therefore, God makes him light. God is a lightweight in his heart, and this makes him a lightweight in his life. And like chaff, he blows away, and sadly, so do God's people under him. David, on the other hand, seems to weigh God properly, doesn't he? It doesn't mean he's perfect, far from it. His sin and his pride are on full, unvarnished display in this. But Israel pays the price. And we also see his deep repentance that indicates to us that even in, especially in his deep sin, God remains heavy in his estimation. Remember, as this R goes, so goes Israel. The prophet and judge Samuel knew this, which is why he warned Israel when they requested a king. It says in chapter 12, verse 12, you came to me and you said you wanted a king to reign over you, even though the Lord your God was already your king. All right, here's the king you've chosen. You've asked for him and the Lord has granted your request. Verse 14. Now, if you fear and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's commands, a.k.a. you give him proper weight then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord our God. But if you rebel against the Lord's commands and refuse to listen to him, in other words, underweigh him in your minds and hearts, then his hand will be heavy upon you as it was on your ancestors. Well, what's Samuel saying? Samuel's saying, as long as this R reflects the heaviness, the weight, the true king, then all is well. But if this R does not, then trouble for all of Israel. And this is how all of Samuel plays out. It creates a longing for us for a true and perfect R, doesn't that? An R, a representative that perfectly represents God's character, a king who will perfectly represent and reflect God's truth and grace. And friends, that is what comes to us, not in Samuel, but in the Gospels. That is what comes to us generations later, born by a God-wrought miracle birth, like Samuel's, born of a godly, word-saturated woman like Hannah. 
who like Samuel will have intimacy with God in the temple. Who like Samuel would be a prophet speaking God's word. I'm talking about Jesus, by the way. Who like Samuel will be a judge who will rule with kindness, though, and with absolute perfect justice. A priest like Samuel who will not just bring us to God, but show God to us and show his perfect mercy and justice by dying as a sacrificial lamb in our place. The perfect and eternal priest who, unlike Saul, would trust the Lord when he's tested. Who, unlike Saul, would lead God's sheep without self-protection, but instead self-sacrifice. Who, like David, would be considered unlikely and too unimpressive to be a king. Who, like David, would be chased around all of Israel by God's religious ruling class. Jesus, who, like David, forgives those who persecute him. Jesus, who, like David, keeps his word. Jesus, who, like David, weeps when his children rebel against him. Jesus, though, who, unlike David, is not a mixed bag at all, is completely faithful, is only respectful to women. Who is not just a shepherd who will save lambs from lions, which David does, but will allow the lion to kill him so that you will be saved forever. Amen. See, Jesus is the only perfect representative of God. Because Jesus is God in flesh. He is the mirror of who God is. You want to know who God is like? Look at King Jesus. King David is at best but a whisper to the shout that is King Jesus. And so what does this mean for you? I, I think this has a one huge implication for you. I want you to place yourself in this circle. That's our takeaway this morning. Okay? Put yourself in that circle and allow Jesus to be the ark. That's it. That's all, that's all I'm asking. Just put yourself in that circle. And let Jesus be your representative. Let him be your king. Let him reflect God to you and to others. I think this will allow us to allow King David's failures point to Jesus. Obviously, with every failure of David, and there are many, as we heard about, Jesus is perfect and true. But I also think, and this is where I think some of us need to hear this, even at David's best, we need to allow his victories, David's, to point us to Jesus. So for instance, when David gathers five smooth stones and steps into the valley with Israel on this hill and the Philistines on this hill, And when he gathers those five smooth stones to take on the giant Goliath. Who is the R in that moment? King David. And who is the X? All of Israel. Well, how can this impressive victory of King David over Goliath point you to Jesus. Well, first of all, you're not the R. Jesus is. Second of all, you are the X. Where are you sitting in the David and Goliath story? You're sitting on the hill. You're sitting on the hill. And you're watching and you're hoping and you're trusting and then yes, you're benefiting from Jesus' victory. 
World Cup soccer is like a week away, and so I've been paying attention to our team, USA, uh, their team roster, and even other countries' team rosters. And this group of men who, along with our women's team, uh, represent the USA. And when they step onto the pitch, when they step onto the field, they are the champions, as it were, not us. They are, in a sense, reflecting or representing our nation. And so we're watching behind our TV screens like 5 in the morning this year, and we're going to be like hoping and trusting that they win. If they lose, we lose. If they win, we win. If they win, we celebrate. If they lose, we get sad. That's how the Bible works. That's how Samuel works. If God's representative wins, God's people win. And David is an unlikely victor, an unlikely hero, a small shepherd who wins in humility, who wins not because he wants glory, but because in his heart God is kavod, heavy, and because God's people need rescued. And that's Jesus for us, friends. That's who Jesus is. His victory on the cross is our victory. And so, yes, it's important to face your giants in life and to do so with faith. But how much easier is it to face your giants when you know that Jesus defeated him for you? That's how it works. We're sitting on the hill and we're just grateful. We are so grateful that King Jesus is the R, the representative we're hoping for and longing for. And so let Samuel point you to King Jesus. See, the Bible is confrontational at this point. In the Bible, God is asking you point blank, who is your representative right now? Where are you? In that circle or outside that circle? Who is your king? Are you going to trust yourself in life and your own victories? Are you going to trust a politician in your life? Are you going to trust King Jesus? The weighty one. The weighty one who makes you more weighty, more alive, more human when you trust him. The weighty one who dies when you fail him. That's Jesus. And Jesus, we come to you now. Some of us, maybe for the first time even, we're done fighting our own battles. We're done, we're exhausted with trying to prove ourselves to you and to prove ourselves to others. And we find this image to be scandalously refreshing. Scandalous because it offends our pride. What you're saying, God, that it's not up to me, but refreshing because all we must do to enter in to this representative's victory is simply drop our arms. And we do. And we come to you now. And we rest in who you are. Thank you for being our true king. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.